Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we're very fortunate to have Jennifer Cuellar Rodriguez. She's Director of Transplant Infectious Disease Consult Service at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Welcome. Thank you, Shrell. Thank you for having me. It's a, a great pleasure. And I had a chance to review the webpage at the NIH, and uh, I was amazed with all the things that you've already done. But tell us about your journey to transplant ID at the NIH. So, you know, from let's talk about ID first. From what I remember, ever very early since I started my career, I wanted to go into ID. I initially was attracted to tropical medicine, I guess. You know, infectious diseases has many areas of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got into medicine because when I was age 12, there was like this devastating earthquake in El Salvador. And my aunt took me and my siblings to some camp for those that end up homeless. And even though at that age, we were, you know, just helping out distributing clothes and food. There was this uh, post from Médecins du Monde, which I guess, so Doctors of the World, which I guess is some similar organization to Doctors Without Borders, mm-hmm. maybe in a smaller scale, that they had their post there. And the doctor that was in charge, I guess, saw me wandering around their post frequently, asked if I wanted to help. And since that day on for the next few weeks, I ended up helping the medical team from, from that post. And, and, you know, I still had to classify things, medicines, but I was in charge of having the first aid kit ready um, wow. for whenever we needed to go somewhere or, you know, someone couldn't come to the clinic and, and I would go with the doctor and the team carrying the first aid kit. So I, once I started doing that, I was like, Oh, I want to be like this doctor. This is what I want to do. So in that sense, tropical medicine kind of made sense. And once I got into internal medicine, I did ended up doing a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene, and, and, and I still was fascinated by it. But once I started doing more of inpatient hospital care, first as internal medicine and then as an ID fellow, you know, I really was attracted to all the opportunistic infections. Um, we, I, I trained in Mexico. So at the Instituto Nacional de Nutrición, which is like a tertiary care hospital, one of the national institutes of health in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And we, we had a large population of patients that were cared for advanced HIV. So unfortunately, back then, you know, many patients sick care very late in their disease and were diagnosed late. So they were presenting with a lot of the opportunistic infections that we used to see early on in the HIV epidemic. Mm-hmm. So I got then and fell in love with that part of ID. Mm-hmm. And, and and again, by chance, I think one of my mentors in Mexico, he had trained at the Cleveland Clinic and the transplant ID department there led by Dr. Robin Avery was looking to start a fellowship in transplant ID and she had secured funds for a clinic uh, uh, from the International Medical Education Center to finance their first fellow in transplant infectious diseases. So because they still had connections with 
again, my mentor in Mexico, they contacted him and said, do you have someone that would be interested in doing transplant ID? And, you know, it's like, Jennifer, I think you should try this. And that's how I got into transplant ID. Back then, at my hospital in Mexico, you know, only a smaller number of transplants were being done, maybe a couple of dozens a year. But when I came back, then, you know, the, the program had grown significantly. Many other colleagues from you know, my generation had gone on to train as surgeons or transplant hepatologists or nephrologists or bone marrow transplanters. So, you know, kind of we all came back at the same time and kind of grew that program in Mexico. But when I finished my fellowship in transplant ID, you know, again, I fell in love with ID again. And it's like, oh, I really like this part of ID also. So I, I think this is, this is where I want to stay. And, and as it often happens, my significant other had applied for a PhD program at Hopkins. So he was going to come and, you know, I needed a job. I couldn't be five years, which is a PhD program and without a job. So I started looking for opportunities and I had met by coincidence, I guess, Dr. Juan Giebenecloche. And he was an ID doctor for the, for the NCI transplant branch mm-hmm. back there called experimental transplantation and immunology branch. So I had met him in a meeting at Case Western. Mm-hmm. And so I contacted him and said, well, you know, we are looking to start a new fellowship with Steve Holland in sort of combined program of primary immunodeficiencies and transplantation. Would you be interested in being the first fellow and seeing if that works out? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> and that's how I came here. And, you know, I stayed as a fellow for two years. And then because when I got here, Probably two or three weeks after I started my fellowship, we had the first transplant for what was then called Monomax syndrome, now mm-hmm. called GATA2 deficiency. You know, I got to be part of that entire story since the very first patient. Wow. So as I was training there, and then, you know, the two years were over, and Steve Holland said, well, you know, I could hire you to take care of those patients, of all our NIAD patients that have primary immunodeficiencies and that the NCI was building a program to transplant them. And they, they need the ID care as they're coming with a lot of infections going to transplant. So he hired me as a staff clinician. But, you know, time passes by and the five years of the Hopkins PhD program were done. And it, we had mm-hmm. always discussed that we were going to go back to Mexico. We both had job offers back in the hospital where we had trained. So we basically went back. I, again, at that point, the transplant program at Nutrition, which is, again, this um, National Institute of Health, had grown significantly. So now, by this time, they're probably doing about 100 kidneys, I don't know, maybe 50 livers and about 50 stem cell transplants. So enough to keep me busy. Mm-hmm. And that gave me the opportunity to actually create like the transplant ID section within the transplant ID department. They were also doing some composite transplants, so extremities transplants. And I got there and, and it was actually a very rewarding time. You know, it just, there's a lot of challenges. So coming from the NIH, I had very few limitations into I wanted to order or, you know, ask for my patients in terms of tests and stuff like that. And then having that, oh, well, 
we don't have amphotericin B. Uh, what do you want to give the patient? Uh, we only have gencyclovir. So for Scarnet, you know, you're a stem cell transplant, you still get gencyclovir. So, you know, all those challenges and, and it was very challenging, but very rewarding trying to, you know, like make that work. And, and, and I think it did. And, and I am very happy to see now that many younger fellows that I got to supervise have gone on to transplant ID at different places and now go back to Mexico. So, you know, to Canada and, and, and the U.S. also. So, um, but because I'm from El Salvador, I had grown in an area where civil war was a big deal and I had kids then and the time line where I was in and and back in Mexico, the political situation and the safety issues started to become a problem, a big mm-hmm. problem. And I honestly sort of didn't want that for my kids. Mm-hmm. And when I left here, Steve Holland and Dennis Hickson, which was the transplanter I mainly worked with back then, you know, they always I kept in touch with them and, and they always like, you know, I was very happy and I think they were happy with me when, when mm-hmm. I was here uh, working and they were like, you know, you can come back whenever. So sort of it just, the opportunity came. Dr. Juan Giapanacloche, who was that MCI ID doctor, went to the Mayo Clinic. So there was even more need uh, mm-hmm. to have infectious disease doctors that work in primary immunodeficiencies and transplant. So, you know, again, Steve contacted me. It's like, you know, this would be a good time if you're ready. And, you know, it's one of those calls that probably the day he comes, like, you know, probably it's a good day to think about this seriously. Again, mostly the security issues. And, and I love my job here. So I was happy to come back. You know, there were things there that I like and there were other things here that I like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, now I care mostly about 50% of the transplants here are for primary immunodeficiencies. Mm-hmm. The other half are hematologic, 30, 40% hematologic malignancies, and then, you know, a smaller percentage of benign heme, uh, so refractory aplastic anemia or sickle cell disease. It's not only transplant, it's gene therapy uh, protocols. So those, those are mostly the types of patients we see. But I had had the opportunity to, you know, spend time with Steve in the primary immunodeficiency area. And a lot of time in doing transplantation. So that kind of fit well. And now here I am and I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And I've had the opportunity to, you know, start growing our department. We're small. We're three. Hanji Benikolochi came back and mm-hmm. Mary Check, which I think you've met. Yeah. She was our first combined fellow between Hopkins and us. So mm-hmm. she's an excellent physician. So she stayed with us also. So, you know, we're slowly growing and I think we have area to keep growing. So that's how I got here. That's fantastic. Quite quite a journey starting uh, in El Salvador onto uh, Mexico. And for those of us that are geographically uh, challenged, El Salvador is how far from Guadalajara, I believe, is where you went to medical school? Yeah, so it's Central America. So I went by myself to Guadalajara, Mexico. So Salvador, you know, it's in, in Central America. So, you know, flight for, I don't know, maybe three hours from Guadalajara, two hours, probably. But I went by myself wow. to study medicine in Mexico. So what I'm picking up is that, that you are not afraid of challenges. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's it's good to be in a position where you are the first one. It has its good things and it has its bad things, right? I mean, but it's mostly good, right? You're exploring stuff. So I, again, when I was with Robin Avery, I was their first transplant ID fellow and it was a big learning experience for all, especially for me, but, but just, you know, getting into that role of developing a, a new area is, it's nice. No, it, it, back it, it, then, transplant ID wasn't as common. Now there's like, I don't know how many programs owe for transplant ID, but back then I think it, it was really the Harvard program or the Mass General program and, and maybe the Mayo Clinic one. And that was it. So it's now very nice to see that we have grown as a community significantly. And absolutely. I, I hope that our growth continues, but I also hope that our growth doesn't lead to some sort of formal certification because I kind of like it that it's, it's a, uh, an academic pursuit that doesn't have to have, uh, somebody, uh, on the board of transplant infectious disease sign off on it. Yeah. I think that's probably an area that will, has been debated and may keep being debated. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know which is the best one. Certainly, you know, all these certifications make things very complicated, but it's, it's good to see that it's growing and is now a very well consolidated subspecialty of our specialty. Yes. And also one that right now is still a, uh, a buyer's market in terms of people that want to get a job in it. There's more positions available than, uh, people that, that can fill them. Yeah. And I think it'll keep growing. I think, I think that's for sure transplantation is still going to be growing and, and there's a lot of need for dedicated transplant ID physicians. What can you and I say? We're a little biased, but I think it does make a difference to know the type of patients. But I think also the oncologists say the same thing in that it used to be that a, a good oncologist had pretty good grasp of uh, infectious disease issues. And right now with the explosion in their type of therapies, and they, they only have so much bandwidth to keep up with it. And then with the explosion in therapies, I mean, it used to be, okay, you had a fungal infection, there was amphotericin B and fluconazole. And now it's just so many more options. And it's hard for uh, somebody who's not in the field to keep up with it. So they do need expertise. I, I, I think sometimes some of the young trainees maybe overdo it a little bit. I, I was recently consulted on a patient that didn't even have an HMP in the chart, but for the most part, uh, I, <laughs> so perhaps the lesson that get ID on board early sunk in, but. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, it's been a wonderful thing to see how it's evolved in, in that sense, how we work collaboratively with our colleagues in, in transplant, um, both from the hematology standpoint, or, you know, I, we don't do solid organ transplants here at the NIH, but I used to work with the surgeons back in Mexico in Cleveland, and it really is a good relationship between us transplant ID and, 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 and I think they feel very comfortable and, and see the need for us to get involved and really be following their patients closely. It just makes sense, I think. Yeah, and there's there's something that I, I like to say, which is trust is earned in drops and lost in buckets. So if we earn that trust, then there's a shared consciousness between us and the people that ask us to help with the patients that we're seeing. On the other hand, if we say things that are uh, off the rails or if we're dogmatic, then that could be a problem. One of my colleagues, Olivia Cates, uh, 
said, don't make your dogma somebody else's job. <laughs> That's so, a good saying. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to tell you about a uh, hypothetical case, 35-year-old man with history of uh, myelodysplastic syndrome, and his ID course has been significant for disseminated mycobacterium cansasii and for histoplasmosis. Someone on round queries whether he could have a gatitude deficiency and the uh, monomax syndrome that you mentioned earlier. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe a little bit about the journey as how you came to learn about it. Yeah. So I think the first thing I would tell someone that is posing that question, I would ask them, so what are the monocytes? Mm -hmm. Did you look at the CVC? And I think we are very good as we train in internal medicine to look at the CVC and we always say, oh, he's got lycocytosis or, or he's neutropenic, right? The extremes, we, we like those too. But often we find that the rest of the differential of the, <laughs> of the leukocytes gets lost, right? It's like, so what were the monocytes? Have you ever looked at the monocytes and tell me what it's, it's a normal thing, right? And so, you know, oh, there, there are no monocytes, right? And, and that's a big clue or very low monocytes is a big clue to, Get it to deficiency. And, and I think an easy one for anyone that does not have easy access to diagnostics, or at least that's a starting point to, to say, well, yeah, maybe there is something wrong with this. Uh, this isn't supposed to be like that. And, and looking at the entire differential in the CVC, I think it's one of the first start points to try to, you know, just decide where should I go from here? What, what's the next step in looking at this patient with this infection? We see a lot of cancer patients and they don't get disseminated mycobacterial diseases just because. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I now go by, go back in the literature, you know, many of these case reports of, you know, oh, disseminated mcansasia in an in otherwise immunocompetent individual. Well, was it really immunocompetent? Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and and things start to come up. So I, I guess you know when I got here to the NIH, as I was touring around, my first day on the job, literally was my first day on the job, and I was with Steve Holland, and he's obviously the father of many primary immunodeficiencies. Mm -hmm. um, and as we were walking around and coming, you know, in an elevator, he's like, oh, have you met Jennifer? She's going to be working in the transplant side of things. And he's like, oh, so you know everything about Monomac. And I'm, you know, panic. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of Monomac in my life. It's my first day at the NH. And obviously, you know, just like keep walking and, uh, you know, kind of nervously keep going. Thankfully, it was an elevator. So the conversation ended very quickly. And then the next thing I know, I'm on rounds. And that same day, they, they're they like, oh, this is our new patient that's going to be coming in later this week. And he's got monomac. Again, the mm -hmm. second time around, so, you know, now I'm in, I'm, I'm in terror. And, and I look up a quick Google search on monomac and there's nothing. I mean, there's like some cells <laughs> that are used in the lab um, that are called monomac that had nothing to do with monomac syndrome and, and very little hits in, in Google. So obviously I panic and, you know, as I, I had to say, it's like, I have no idea what y'all are talking about. Right. So, oh, it's this disease. It, we haven't reported it yet. 
So their first <laughs> publication came on that year later on, but wow. it still had not been published. And and I was like, okay, I guess I'm absolved at least a little bit of my lack of knowledge. And that happens to me here frequently, you know, get into these diseases that I've never heard of. And you suddenly, and, and, and I think that's one of the areas of, you know, you work in a very large academic center where you find this often, I'm sure, that, you know, you find the person that first described this disease and they're describing this disease. They're in the process of getting the description mm -hmm. out and, and you start to hear about it in rounds and all of that. And that makes it so interesting, you know, just how it evolves and the views of the, again, of the, uh, of the father of that disease, how it changes over time. You see it change as mm -hmm. you're learning from these patients. So that first patient, actually, when they showed it to me, I was like, well, are you sure he doesn't need a lung transplant? Because yes, he has some cytopenias, but those lungs, so, you know, GATA2 patients frequently have pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. So this mm -hmm. patient had mm -hmm. horrible lungs and had, had required full lung lavage to get all the goop out of their lungs. So the macrophages, the rest of the macrophages do not work. And this disease, so they accumulate, so they don't have specific anti-GM-CSF antibodies, which mm -hmm. is another cause of pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, but they have macrophages that don't work and don't remove that surfactant. So they become, you know, terrible lungs. They come in, again, he had needed several lung lavage. It was an oxygen, was oxygen dependent. And that, that patient ended up having the bone marrow transplant and eventually having a lung transplant. And I am happy to say that we just saw him probably about six months ago. So this is 2009, and he has a kid now and went through a bone marrow transplant and a lung transplant and, wow. and he's doing very well. So definitely pulmonary alveolar proteinosis without known antibodies. It's, it's one hint for get it to deficiency. Obviously, myelodysplastic syndrome at an, uh, with a disseminated microbacterial infection, which is why the monomac name came from. So uh, a mm -hmm. postdoc at Steve Holland's lab came up with that name at that point. You know, patients had monocytopenia and frequently had MAC or other NTMs and came up with that name. Eventually, again, it was known that this was all get it to deficiency and it's been known by many names. So not only monomax syndrome, Emberger syndrome, the Europeans would call it NKB cell dendritic cell deficiency syndrome, familial leukemia. So when they first identified GATA2 as the driver of what is now known GATA2 deficiency, it was in a cluster of patients that had familial leukemia. And, and, you know, it's funny because they mention it just out of the blue leukemia and, and families, you know, in maybe the 20s and 30s, um, but no history of infections. But we got to see some of those patients. And, you know, it's like many of the infections get confused, I guess, with part of the oncologic problem that they're having. So, you know, they have some leukemia, so they should have infections, right? But no, the infections are so characteristic. And uh, basically, once that report of that familial leukemia came out, we were following one of those patients here 
and it, it just all made sense for Steve and his team. And, you know, they looked at specifically at GATA2. And yes, you know, we had been following all these patients for disseminated microbacterial diseases that were difficult to control. So Steve Holland studies Mendelian um, susceptibility of microbacterial uh, disease. But this cohort of patients didn't fit the usual bill, right? So they didn't get the microbacterial disease when they were young or when they were vaccinated with VCD. Mm-hmm. And had troubles with it, but they acquired over time, you know, adolescence or early adulthood and may be asymptomatic for a long period of time. And then just started getting in trouble later on. So significantly different to more classic primary immunodeficiencies. So what else can our, our characteristic things of this disease? So there's B cell and K cell and monocytopenia. And those are by far the hallmark of the disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, not so complicated to look into. Most places can now do lymphocyte phenotyping now. So you can look specifically at B cells and see how they're doing NK cells and, and they will be low. And with that, the patients get warts. They get invasive HPV at a younger age. So similar to what we see in advanced HIV, that mm-hmm. they had a severe invasive HPV infection. Patients can present in their 20s with vulvectomies or, you know, from wow. malignant HPV. So that's another, I guess, another characteristic of this disease because GATA2 uh, is, is a transcription factor early in hematopoiesis and again involved in many areas of development. Patients can go on to develop myelodysplastic syndrome or, you know, frank AML but also have the predisposition to all these other infections, plus lymphedema, congenital lymphedema has been associated to this disease also. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the exact explanation we'll get it to in the lymph vessels has there, but there is some role to play too. Um, yeah, I saw a recent report from a journal that I had not been familiar with, and it had a woman with lymphedema as part of her presentation. Yeah. So again, very diverse presentation. So this can be seen by the, you know, now, now that it's obviously a very well-established disease, you know, the, the referrals can come from the gynecologist seeing this woman with recurrent HPV that does not have HIV and still gets invasive mm-hmm. recurrent uh, recalcitrant HPV or, you know, just warts everywhere. The pulmonary albular proteinosis or just ongoing bronchiectasis from frequent infections specifically the mycobacterial infections become a significant problem, not only pulmonary, but disseminated mycobacterial disease um, mm-hmm. by non-tuberculous mycobacteria are, are typical of this disease. And, and many MDS, again, that previously had been transplanted because of progression to AML are now being recognized as having this disease as one of the familial predispositions to bone marrow failures. So yeah. going back to your patient, you know, uh, I guess, yes, it's, the MDS NTM combination, definitely you should think about this disease. And one quick way, and it's not a hundred percent, but most patients would be, would have monocytopenia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a hundred percent because some patients do go through a, a phase uh, that they start to increase their monocytes and can develop CMML. So there's a period of time that their monocytes appear normal or early on before they develop any symptoms, their CVC looks normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
what what makes that switch is still not known. You know, this exposure to different infections or what exactly, uh, at what point in time they, they change, that it's not really known. But you can see it happen. But someone that's already had MDS and mycobacterial infection, definitely this is one of the diseases that, that we would think about. And again, just doing a lymphocyte phenotype, looking at NK cells, B cells, and then there are changes, characteristics in the bone marrow that, you know, a good pathologist can look at it and say, oh, yeah, this is consistent mm-hmm. um, with GATA2 deficiency. And now it's part of all the familial leukemia panels. So now testing has become much easier. So a good clinical history is still very important in these diseases. And, you know, if you say, oh, yeah, my, my aunt died, but, you know, unrelated to my problem, uh, which is mycobacteria, she died of some cancer, some leukemia. I don't know. You know, that, that, that history comes around so, so often if you, if you start looking into it. So again, the, the, a good history is still the scalpel of the infectious disease doctor. Uh, yeah, I, I cannot uh, underline that enough in that it all starts with the history. And as somebody far wiser than me said, we are the storytelling animal, not in ID, but humans. And the stories uh, are critical to us making the diagnosis, which then can lead us to making the correct uh, decision for uh, patients. Yeah, when I, when I was back in Mexico, I honestly didn't have a lot of a very sophisticated diagnostics for genetic diseases, which are still scarce everywhere. So, mm-hmm. you know, even in the U.S., you still need to look for someone that that's their job, right? And how, how are you diagnosing this? It's still, you know, now we get panels that are more, that are easier to order as a commercial panel of PID diseases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's only very recent. And before then, it's like someone that's working on that disease. Let me call them and see if they can look at the blood of my patient and, and see if they have the disease that, you know, sort of fit that phenotype. So I, I had the opportunity to, to look at different patients that had been classified as having other diseases. Again, this is common because it's so many, so varied in GATA2 deficiency, for example, that, you know, they're, they're classified as having some other problem and then you just kind of put it all together and oh yeah this is what you have actually i had one patient that we transplanted here but he was mexican and he's like oh you're going back to mexico my son please can you see him and i got to see him and refer him here for transplant so now we've had three of that family member transplanted here but i got to see him back in mexico he searched me up and you know i did a cbc and lo and behold he had cytopenias. He was completely asymptomatic, but it had already cytopenias. Wow. So in, in our final minutes, I wanted to ask you, uh, because so many of us are uncomfortable with diagnosing primary immunodeficiency syndrome. If we don't have Steve Holland in our back pocket, who, who do you refer them to that uh, can help you? Yeah, I think, again, that's still a difficult question for everyone out there. So, you know, there's um, this big group that is called um, called the International Union of Immunological Societies and through their inborn errors of immunity community, mm-hmm. they put out a list of diagnoses. Uh, and this is, uh, they, they publish this every two years. So one year... It comes out all the genetic defects that have been discovered on the last 
couple of years, so two years, and they classify all the diseases by their genetic defect. And then the other year, this stopped during COVID, uh, but that had usually been the pace. They classify it by phenotype, which is what we feel more comfortable doing, right? If you don't have direct access to genetic, you know, I'm going to do a whole genome sequence on this patient that seems weird and see what comes up. So, and, and, and that's very, very useful. But I think, you know, just in general, as we as ID physicians first start with the pathogen, right? Who controls this pathogen and who from the other diseases that we take care of? Uh, now we use a lot of, uh, very specific monoclonal antibodies, very mm-hmm. specific small molecules that target very specific areas of the immune system that can really, really inform what's happening on a patient. So, you know, CMC, so it's, it's chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis. Now we know it's, uh, very well associated to IL-17. Uh, and anything that targets that pathway, TH17 and, and, and that may, may result in chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about the pathogen and who controls that pathogen, then you can sort of start looking. I still think yep. unless you have access to these PID panels, which are now out there and include like 300 genes of known primary immunodeficiencies, but I still think that if that's not, you know, feasible, at least initially, because these are very expensive panels and who's going to pay for them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's starting by looking at the pathogen from the ID standpoint. You know, we're going to have referrals for infections, right? Or, you know, a patient has recurrent infections. So what, what is the, their specific problem? And if we think about uh, things like aspergillus that we deal so often in our hematology patients, mm-hmm. in, wh- why do those patients have aspergillosis? So, well, if we think about the pathogen and why hematologic patients get aspergillosis, their neutrophils are not working, they or they are lacking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we go on to what are the diseases where the neutrophils don't work, and then you know, chronic granulomatous disease may come up, and that's where you get aspergillosis if you don't. Have have a transplant or chemotherapy or, you know, leukemia that requires chemotherapy. I, I, I use that example frequently with, with the fellows when we're trying to look at patients and, you know, it's like, oh, maybe it's HIV. And it's like, well, you, know, you rarely see aspergillus in HIV patients unless they had lymphoma and chemotherapy. It's not one of the big ones, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a big one in, in these other patients. So look, thinking about the pathogen and which diseases that in, in which we intervene, uh, we see those pathogens regularly can help us sort of try to understand the primary immunodeficiency. Obviously, the cause of the disease would suggest uh, a primary immunodeficiency. Why would someone get chronic norovirus if they don't have immunosuppressives on board mm-hmm. um, or chronic cryptosporidium? The localization of the, of the, of the pathogen, it's disseminated disease, uh, or, you know, even an NTM. If an NTM, if you don't have a structural abnormality that predisposes you to that or just a direct inoculation in the skin, why are you getting this disease? It's not supposed to be there. Any fungal infection should be considered abnormal. So unless you're taking a lot of antibiotics and get developing thrush because we're messing with your flora, 
uh, you shouldn't be developing thrush otherwise. And, and that's a hint that that's certainly abnormal. So now, now that you, you know, in general, they say if you have three bacterial infections that require antibiotics in a year, you should start worrying in adults. But mm-hmm. obviously in kids, this is very different. And in different time points, you know, kids under a year, I think they can have six episodes of bacterial infections and still consider within the norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, in, and that varies, you know, with ages, they, they keep changing. And I, I always have to look those up because I'm not a pediatrician. But in adults, in general, you shouldn't have pneumonia more than once as an adult. You can have pneumonia, but, you know, usually more than once, that should be suspicious. You shouldn't have recurrent sinusitis if you don't have chronic allergies. We all have chronic allergies, so we all get sinusitis. But if you don't have that as a driver, then that should, should make you think that maybe something's gonna, going on. Otitis, again, a thing of kids, not adults. Why are adults getting otitis if there's no structural abnormality that predisposes you to it then maybe an immune abnormality mm-hmm. and and obviously traditionally humoral defects were the most commonly recognized in, in adults i think this is probably because one they're easy to recognize right we can all order immunoglobulins mm-hmm. it's easy to order but now we know that's a, that's also a component of you know a huge spectrum of diseases that got all put in together on common variable immunodeficiency, but really it's, it's, it's a huge spectrum of diseases that now many of them have a genetic explanation for them and, and, and why they occur. So a, a good, easy, accessible way, I think, is just, just by starting a good CVC, uh, the differential of the lymphocytes. Uh, and the immunoglobulins in response to vaccines, right? With that, we can sort of superficially explore the immune system and, and see if they're in trouble, then probably referring them to someone that does this for a living is, is, is the best way to proceed. Again, now there are PID panels that can be ordered, but I, and, and before this has changed over time, before we used to do a lot of directed Diagnostics. So, you know, I think the defects is in the interfering gamma alpha uh, pathway. Let, let me look at that. Let me explore that. And it's very good, uh, if you have that accessible, but as many, uh, more phenotypes corresponding to different gene defects come up, there are more than 500 monogenic defects identified currently that can have all these varied symptoms. Probably going, you know, with a much wider view is going to be the way to go. But mm-hmm. I still think it, it, it needs to go through uh, an immunologist or or an ID doctor that that's their main thing, I, which is not me. I'm the transplant ID, <laughs> but you know I, I get to see some of them as they're already diagnosed and come to me mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. infections. No, I think that I think it's it's so important to know what your strengths are, what you bring to the table, and then also when um, you need somebody with a different skill set of expertise. Uh, so often patients ask me, I had a patient yesterday in clinic, and they, they asked me about whether they should get another round of chemotherapy and when. And, and I said, you know, if you were my family member, I can give you an opinion, but you didn't come to me as to give you an opinion. You came to me for expert consultations. So I think you're better off talking about that issue with this other person. Definitely. I think there was another thing that you brought up, which I think is so important, and that's to remember about structure. 
So uh, you can get sinusitis because you have a problem in your sinuses. You can get aspergillosis even or mycobacterial infection if you have a problem with your airway. So it, it's important to get that history to find out, okay, is there a proper explanation for why this person has this opportunistic infection that, or if our explanation isn't good enough, then let's dig a little deeper to find out if there's a uh, defect in their immune system. Now, of course, as a transplant and oncology infectious disease doctor, most of the patients that I get have a problem that is iatrogenic or due to their disease, whether it's uh, immunosuppressives or uh, their underlying disorder. And just recently, I'm just going to bring it up because I, I remember as you were describing this, I, we had a patient that came back from transplant, I don't know, two years out of a stem cell transplant um, for some hematologic malignancy that I don't remember right now, but he was in remission. So he was off immunosuppressants and was on inhaled budesonide for mm-hmm. chronic graft-versus-host disease and came in with a lung nodule that ended up being aspergillosis. And I'm like, why would this patient get aspergillosis at this time point? Really, it doesn't really make sense. And, you know, we measure if he was having systemic absorption of the budesonide, mm-hmm. significant systemic absorption of the budesonide. Um, and, and, you know, we didn't find uh, the ASOS can do that. Um, he had been taking ASOS, uh, intermittently. I don't know if that sort of originated the niche or, or what. Uh, not at the moment we saw him, but, but again, always to always think about why is this happening at this time point? Is there another alternative explanation? Really, really is important in infectious diseases in general, not only in transplant ID. All right. So as we wrap up, thank you so much. It's so important. We say I'll pivot to a totally different topic. And I was talking to a uh, patient of mine from El Salvador just yesterday, and we talked about Pollo Campero. And he said <laughs> that it's much better in El Salvador than the stuff you get here in uh, Maryland. Well, you know, Pollo Campero is one of those things that brings memories from my infancy. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I have to say that I've gone as an adult and I don't, it's not as, as spectacular as I thought it was when I was a kid. I uh, see. But when I was a kid, I used to think it was like the best thing and I've never tried it here. So I can't comment on the, on how good it is here or not. The pupusas though, which uh-huh. is, uh, maybe you've heard of pupusas. No? Well, I, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, which I'm going to assume has uh, maybe the second highest population of El Salvadorians outside of El Salvador. It, it does. Yes. So there's a lot of pupusas. So there are some really good pupusas here. So yeah. one thing I've learned about El Salvadorians uh, from living in Montgomery County, at least the ones that are here, very entrepreneurial and very uh, strong business sense, including in selling uh, El Salvadorian food. Many of the uh, of, of the El Salvadorian restaurants where I live have to have a Tex-Mex part of the menu because there's maybe people aren't as familiar with the back page of the menu, which is where I order from, which is uh, some of the uh, delicacies from uh, Central America. Yeah, definitely. There's, you know, it, they always add the Tex-Mex and I'm like, hmm. Not really. This is El Salvadorian with some, you know, uh, we'll put some tacos there just so that someone, you know, that doesn't know pupusas order tacos, but they're 
I lived in Mexico, their tacos are actually not that good, but their pupusas are. But their pupusas are. <laughs> so, so definitely I, go for the Salvadorian. So speaking of food, I also understand that Mexico City has some of the finest restaurants in the world. I've never been to Mexico City, but that's what I hear. It's amazing. It has a great variety of, of restaurants and, and just the local cuisine is so diverse and mm-hmm. delicious. And I don't think the Mexican restaurants outside of, or at least in this area, live up to the true Mexican variety. But Mexico City has obviously, you know, not only Mexican food, just from all around the world. And it's, it's, it has very good places. It's, it's a nice place to visit. Um, One of my dreams is, is to go to Oaxaca to enjoy the food there. Oh, amazing. Oaxaca is beautiful. It's one of the, Best, my favorite places in Mexico City and the food, and not Mexico City, in Mexico. Uh, and, and the food is, is also fantastic. So definitely go to Oaxaca, you know, so the FA, so it's Mexico City has, it's a huge city, it has a lot of to give. Um, but if you only can choose one, probably Oaxaca, it's, it's a good one. Yeah, definitely. We, we need to make some transplant ID. I, I keep telling my friends from Mexico, it's like, you need to, you know, come up with a conference that we all go to in, in Oaxaca. I have a very good friend that from, from Oaxaca, so we, oh, well, we there always we go. talk about it. Yeah, and tell them that if they're going to do a conference, it, it shouldn't be a Zoom conference. We have to go in person. In person, yeah, no, of course. Yeah, and get some mezcal. And get some mezcal, of course. <laughs> well, so great talking to you, and thank you for educating us about a uh, condition that uh, many of us may have heard of but didn't really know all that much about gratitude deficiency monomax syndrome is the uh the informal name and hope that we get to talk to you again in the future bye-bye thank you for having me